So imagine you're, you're camped out in, in, in the crazy desert, right? Um, like, imagine you're halfway between here and Green River, Utah, just bearing some grass, you know, maybe that a goat could find here or there, but rocky, barren, there's this giant, these giant, jagged, rocky peaks that just like come up, and it's the wilderness somewhere in modern day Saudi Arabia. It's only been three months, but it feels like years. So you, you grew up hearing rumors of God. In fact, you were named um, Yaakov. You were named after a, a guy who actually had an incredible encounter with God, one of your forefathers. Um, but you haven't heard anything about God for quite a while. You, you know, honestly, if you're honest, you, you maybe think that if there is a God, he's somewhere back over in the, in the old country because all you hear about in Egypt are the gods of Egypt. And, and then really, you feel like if this God is even there, you're not sure if he really cares about you. Because all you've known is just a brutal, hard life of slavery. You know, you're kind of respected in your community. You've become a leader in your community. They consider you one of the leaders of the people. You advocated for them with the slave masters. But honest, if you're honest, you've barely been able to do anything. And you find yourself discouraged because, you know, it just never seems to make a difference. And then, one day, in the midst of all this, this back-breaking work, you, you hear a whispered rumor that this crazy guy, Moses, has rolled into town with some crazy story. And you remember the name because, like, 40 years before this, you've heard about this guy that 40 years before this, you know, was a prince in Pharaoh's court, but now you know, has been gone for 40 years. And yet, you, you hear about, he's, he's going to gather the people together. And so, you go to that meeting of the people because you're one of the, the elders, you're one of the respected people in, in the community. And he tells you about how this God appeared to him in a burning bush and spoke to him and said that actually, he cared about his people and he was going to deliver his people. And then he did these really cool signs in front of you. And all of a sudden, you started to wonder, I wonder if this could be true. I wonder if all these stories I heard are actually true. And then before you know it, he, he confronts Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's not going to let you go. And you think, well, that's game over right there. But then stuff starts happening, crazy stuff, unexplainable stuff. The Nile turns to blood. There's frogs, there's flies, there's darkness. And throughout this whole process, you're, you're protected. And, and before you know it, he delivers you. This God delivers you, and you're out hiking through the desert towards the Red Sea. And then he brings you, like when your back is up against the wall and you're terrified that the, that the army of Pharaoh is going to kill you. In fact, honestly, you were thinking, maybe this God isn't good. Maybe he just brought us out here to let Pharaoh massacre us. He delivers you. He brings you through the Red Sea and out the other side and through the desert. And now, it's only been three months, but now you're camped out in front of the mountain of God. And although you haven't seen this God, the rumor is this God is going to come to meet with you. And one day, as Moses approaches the mountain, incredibly, the top of the mountain, there, a cloud comes down. It starts to shake and rumble. You hear the sound of a trumpet 
and you're freaked out of your mind. But Moses comes back and, and tells you that God has, he's, he's, you're his people. And because you're his people now, he wants to give you the guidelines that he, for your community. And he is going to come and meet with you in a special way. And so Moses heads back up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and to get the, the laws that God is going to give to structure this society that's going to be unlike any other society in the world. His chosen people. And then one morning, you get the message from Moses. Hey, hey, you're one of the leaders. Today is the day. Today is the day when, when you as a people make a covenant with God and say, we're in. And today is the day when actually this God now wants to meet with you. This God that you've seen do all these amazing things wants to meet with you. If you're that guy, if you're Yaakov, uh, it's, it's not hard to take God seriously at that point, is it? It's not hard to have just an incredible awe and reverence for him. In fact, probably you're scared to death. I would be. As you see the mountain shake and all of a sudden this God wants to meet with you. You're probably scared, but at the same time you can't wait to experience what comes next. Now, flash forward 3,500 years to us here today. When's the last time you took God this seriously? When did you last experience this kind of reverence and awe for him? Um, when were you ever this intent to listen to the words he had for you and to obey when could you last not stop yourself from sharing him with everyone you came in contact with? I'm guessing for many. Or if you're like me, perhaps, you're like, gosh, it's, it's been a while since I felt that incredible sense of awe and reverence, since I took, feel like I took God that seriously. Or maybe for some of you, it's like, man, I've never taken God that seriously. For some of you, it's like, honestly, I can go through a whole day, I can go through a whole week um, with really barely giving God a second thought. Like, I believe in him, you know, he's out there somewhere, throw up a quick prayer, take my kids to church. But honestly, a lot of days, I don't even give God a second thought. And if that's you in the room, and it, I think Exodus 24 is going to be a helpful passage for us today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn on over. If you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me. And just to remind you, the purpose, the, the reason God is raising up this people, the people of Israel, are to be, he told them just a couple chapters back, they are to be a kingdom of priests. Their job, their commission in this world is that when uh, God's going to bless them incredibly as they follow his law, they're going to be unlike any society that anyone around has ever seen. Free, prosperous, blessed. And their job as a kingdom of priests or people that represent God to, to the world is going to be to live in such a way that people from all around the world are going to look at them and go, wow, who is your God? I want to know that God. I want to serve that God. I want to worship that God. That's the purpose of their people. That's their commission. 
And so this past three chapters we've been looking at is known as the book of the covenant. And God has been giving Moses, beginning with the, with the ten words or the ten commandments, and, and then moving on to a bunch of case law, actually, for how to structure a society. God has been giving Moses the guidelines that will make this nation stand out as incredibly blessed, incredibly fruitful, incredibly prosperous, with wisdom and understanding that no one has experienced. And he's made amazing promises to them if they obey him, if they keep their, their side of the covenant. And so Exodus chapter 24, verse 1, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, so Aaron, his brother, the, the high priest, and Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And our guy we started talking about, Yaakov, he, he's in there. He's one of the elders. He's one of the respected leaders that has a, a place of authority and position. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. Okay, so here's, what, here's the scene. Here's what's going on. You've got the mountain of God, this, this, this big plain or this valley in front of it, that a big people group, we're talking like a million plus, probably around two million people plus a bunch of livestock, is camped out in. God's feeding them with, with manna on a daily basis. Um, they're camped out there. And then you've got this jagged mountain just coming up. I did some research, and, and many people think this mountain is in modern-day Saudi Arabia on the uh, eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba. In fact, there's this one mountain that's really interesting because it goes, it, it's one of the tallest mountains in the area, and the whole top of it is blackened. But the inside of the rock is not. It's like the others. And so it's really fascinating. And scholars have gone back and forth like, how could this happen? And one explanation is this is the mountain where the cloud of God came down on. Um, so Mount Sinai. We're not 100% sure where it is. Traditionally, it's located in the Sinai Peninsula. In either location, you're in, a, you're in this desert valley. You're camped in front of this jagged, incredible mountain peak. And now the mountain has been sectioned off, Right? So the mountain is, is sectioned off. And I just got to say about Moses, um, if you've noticed, he just keeps running up and down this mountain. I mean, dude is in shape. He's like 80 years old. I want to be in this kind of shape when I'm, when I'm you know, to climbing the mountains and stuff. Because he just keeps running up and down this mountain a bunch of times. In fact, it's funny, in Exodus chapter 19, as God tells him, um, God has sectioned off the mountain. They've put a boundary around it. And because the idea is this place is holy ground. And so you don't come into holy ground unless your sin has been atoned for. We'll see that in a second. So Moses goes back and forth. He's running up and down. And he comes up the mountain. And God goes, hey, I want you to go down and, and tell the people God has just told them this. Go tell the people, section off the mountain, don't you dare break through the line or else like, you're going to die. And so Moses tells them this. He goes back up the mountain to, to, to commune with God, to speak with God. And God tells him again, oh, why don't you run back down and remind them not to break through? I, I don't know. It's funny because Moses is like, uh, God, I just, remind, I just told them that. Do I really need to go back up and down? And God's like, yeah. So God's like, I'm getting you into shape, buddy. You got to stay in shape. So anyway, um, so that's the mountain. But in this, this mountain sectioned off, and he says the 70 elders can come up and, with Moses, and, but don't, you can't come real close, and the people can't break on through. And, and as you come, you're going to worship. 
at a distance. And literally scholars believe this is the practice that's pretty common in the Middle East of literally prostrating themselves. You got to be careful with that word. Um, in, down, laying down in front of a higher power and worshiping. So it's like a, it's a sign of obedience and submission to a higher power, literally worshiping. In fact, if you've ever had a real intense time of worship with the Lord and you've just felt moved to kneel down, this is that kind of experience, right? And so Moses gathers up all these people as God tells him to do. Verse 3, And when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, so he comes down the mountain, we don't know if he goes right back up or a day or two passes, but he comes down the mountain, and then he gathers them up and says, here are all the words, like the words, that was the Ten Commandments, and the laws, this is the book of the covenant that God has given you. Here's what God has told you to obey. It says, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. We're in. We're in. Now, come back next week because we're going to see how long we're in lasts. Okay? This is something true of us as human people. Verse 4, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 stone pillars. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Or literally, um, the, the, the Hebrew is, we will do it, we will hear. Which is interesting because some Jewish scholars think, uh, you know, the real understanding of this is oftentimes to, to understand something, you have to do it, right? Parents, kids, you know this, right? If you're a parent, a lot of times you tell your kid to do something, you're like, I know you don't get this, but trust me. This is the way you do it. Or, or in this situation, here's, here's what's going to, to bring you life. Here's what's going to bring you joy in this situation. And then you do it, and you look back and you go, oh, I get it now. So the idea here is we're going to fully understand, but we're going to fully understand when we obey the word that God has said. Verse 8, Moses then took the blood. So they've sacrificed these, these animals. This is a very significant part. What's happening here is a covenant ceremony. Verse 8, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. So he puts half of the blood on the altar as an atonement for sin or as a covering for sin. This is the idea that as as human beings, we've all sinned. Romans says we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And in in, in our sinful state, we can't approach the holiness of God. It separates us from relationship with God. And, and so if year after year after year, they would offer offerings to atone for sin. But then because of that, he's going to take half of it. Then he took half the blood, sprinkled it on the people. This is the fellowship part. This is representing fellowship with God. So half represents atonement. And then because of that atonement, all of a sudden, the people have fellowship. The people have relationship with God. 
Moses tells him, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this is a ceremony. This ratifies, this puts into effect the covenant. Verse 9. Now, this is incredible. Moses and Aaron, Nahab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up. So they go into the next level of the mountain and saw the God of Israel. Wow. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli. Try to say that one 10 times quickly. Go. Just kidding. I messed it up last night, and they laughed at me. Uh, So lapis lazuli, as bright as the sky, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Now, two incredibly important little things that are going on here. They saw God, they ate and drank. Like, they saw God. What's going on here? This is curious, because if, if you know the Bible, if you know this, even the book of Exodus, just a few chapters later, God is meeting with Moses, and Moses feels like he's in a really good spot with God, and so he goes, God, show me your glory. I want to see you. And God says, okay. But he says, um, but all you get to see is my back, or... Um, Another idea of that is all you get to see is the place right after where I've been. Because anyone who sees my face or my unveiled presence, it'll kill you. Game over. In fact, all throughout Scripture, there's an interesting thing. Like maybe what's going on here um, is God appearing in the form of, of a man. You see this actually all throughout the Old Testament. And it's an interesting thing where many scholars think that this is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, right? But you see the angel of God, you, you see this, this figure as a man appear to Jacob and they wrestle actually. And, and, and Jacob says, bless me. And then Jacob figures out after the fact that this was actually God in, in the form, veiled in the form of a human. And he freaks out. He goes, I saw God and I didn't die, right? And you have all, this all throughout Hagar, um, the mother of Ishmael sees, freaks out. She figures out, I saw God and I didn't die. Um, Gideon, same thing. Like the angel has to tell him, it's okay, you're not going to die. Samson's parents, they're like the same thing. Like she goes, I don't know, you did, but I don't think if he would have wanted to kill you, I think he would have killed you already, right? And so there's this theme over and over that every time somebody realizes they've been in the presence of God, they think like, I'm dead. I'm a dead person. There's something about the presence of God. And, and so God says, you cannot see my unveiled presence like the full essence of my glory. And so maybe what's going on here is a vision, like the prophet Ezekiel has in in Ezekiel 1.1. Here's how Ezekiel describes that. In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And he sees all these like, crazy, wacky, living creatures like surrounding the throne of God, like hard to describe things, right? Spread out above the heads of the living creatures with what looked like something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. I love that. Awesome. In fact, this whole scene that these people experienced must have been awesome, right? Awesome. I asked last night... um, like, what do kids, I know, like, young people, you're not, you don't say awesome. That's kind of like your parents. That's so like, you know, your parents say awesome, and you're like, you're so old school. And so I'm like, well, what do you say today? 
And one of our youth is like, dope. I'm like, we'll stick with awesome, okay? We'll stick with awesome. They talk a lot more on Saturday nights, just so you know. So they talk back a lot more. You guys are a little more mellow, more reserved. So Anyway, um, so... It was awesome. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like the throne of lapis lazuli. There you see it again, which is like a clear blue sapphire kind of gemstone. And the high above on the throne was the figure like that of a man. I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, and he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and the brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he says this was the appearance of the likeness. It wasn't God per se, his unfailed glory, but it was, it was like the likeness. It was a, an appearance of it. I mean, you can just get this thing. He's trying to describe this. He's like, so hard to describe, but it was awesome, right? And here's what happened. When I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of the one speaking. So this is so, I really think what's happening here is they see, you know, God appearing in the form of a man in kind of awesome thing. It doesn't say they saw all of him. All they see is his feet and perhaps this blinding light. But whatever they saw, this was awesome. It was awesome. And the point is you would not see this and go away unchanged. And so they saw God. They saw God. And then they ate and drank. And this is so significant because what's going on here is it's a celebration of a covenant that's been made, that God made a covenant with them. Israel says, we're in. We want to embrace this. And they ratified this covenant through this, through this amazing ceremony. And now they're celebrating fellowship with God. They're sitting here. God's up there. They see his presence like, whoa, that's cool. And they're eating and drinking. It's a feast to celebrate. They have fellowship with God, relationship with God. And all throughout Scripture, feasts are going to be very significant. All right, verse 12. So they're, they're here. They're halfway up the mountain. They're partway up the mountain. They see this. They have this experience. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. Now, this is kind of funny. Moses is like, ah, I'm leaving it in good hands. Yeah, come back next week. <laughs> uh, verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain and stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine like our guy, ya Yaakov, right? As he, as he hangs out there on the mountain, as he sees this, like, Three, it's only been three months, but man, his life has been radically transformed. He would never be the same. What an encounter. What a scene. Like 
There is no way you would be ho-hum about this God, right? The glory of God is like a consuming fire. No way you wouldn't take this God seriously. No way you wouldn't pay attention to what he says. You are changed. You are changed. But what does that have to do with you and me here 3,500 years ago? I'm just guessing none of you have um, had quite this exact experience. Some of you have had, like I have, had pretty incredible experiences um, with the tangible presence of God. But I've never seen him. I've never heard an audible voice. I know people have. How does this affect us? And I want to just take a few minutes and go through three different words that really bring out the significance of this for us here 3,500 years later and us in the New Testament era. And these three words are covenant, presence, and a feast. And to help us kind of look at this, I want to, I want to look at a passage in Hebrews that actually the author of Hebrews, who, who many scholars believe, most scholars believe was the Apostle Paul, but we're not 100% sure. But it's one of the most important theological books in the New Testament, or letters. It's a letter written to the Hebrews. That's why it's called Hebrews. And it's talking about this time when God makes a covenant with his people, but then the fact that Christ comes to make a new covenant with us. A new covenant that, that is expanded and, and isn't just with this people, but now included are people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Hebrews 9.15 says this. Covenant is the first word. He says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And everybody reading this knows what that new covenant is. The prophet Jeremiah talks about it, right? Um, the prophet Jeremiah talks about this new covenant that's coming as, as the tents of Jacob will be expanded to include all these other people, that the, the law of God will be written on our hearts, that God will remember our sins no more. This is an incredible thing. And Jesus comes, and as he's taking the Last Supper, says, hey, guess what? This night is the celebration of this new covenant, right? Isaiah the prophet talks about this. He talks about the time when all the nations would be sprinkled by his servant. An interesting thing, but you remember where we saw this language. We'll see it here in a second. So Christ is the mediator of the new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Now hang, hang in here because this is one of the, the most theologically dense, tricky passages in all of Scripture. Okay? Verse 19, when Moses, here he's flashing back 1,500 years to this scene on the mountain that we just read. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and the branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. See, this idea here is, is a, un, a people who are not holy cannot be in the presence of a holy God, and so every year they would have to come and offer these sacrifices 
But now Jesus comes and he initiates a new covenant that's going to be different and it's going to be once and for all. And God's intention has always been to extend his relationship with his chosen people to all the nations that all of us can become part of this covenant with God that we can all. Remember, they saw God, they ate and drank, they celebrated. This is an awesome celebration. The fact that you have fellowship, you have communion, you have relationship with God. And what the author of Hebrews is going to tell us is, is that, that actually, as amazing as that was, that's like only a, like, like a picture of our relationship. It's like a copy of the real thing, of what we get to experience through Jesus. Okay, so you have covenant, you have presence. Hebrews 9.23, it was necessary then for copies, see? The way he looks at this, copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. In other words, there's like a bigger heavenly reality. And what, what went on here on the mountain, it was like a copy of what actually was happening in heaven. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. So now another place it talks about that he is, he is the mediator. That Jesus actually prays for us. That when, when God sees Sinful man, he, when you put your faith and trust in him, he no longer sees you through the lens of what you've done. He sees you through the lens of what Jesus has done and is pure before him because of Jesus' one sacrifice. And because of that, you have an incredible access to God's presence. In fact, seeing God, isn't that like, haven't you ever wished you could just see him? Haven't you ever thought like, man, if I could just see God, that would be amazing? Like what they experienced? That would be amazing, right? Here's what John, the Apostle John says about seeing God. He says, no one has ever seen God. Like, but wait a minute, it says they saw God. Yeah, not his unveiled presence. They would have been dead, right? Game over. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who himself, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So Jesus, who has always been with the Father, comes to earth to offer us an incredible opportunity to have a new covenant and relationship in his presence. And then goes back to the presence, the very unveiled presence of God, right? In fact, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, actually, in John 14, if I... It's better that I go. I know you're glad I'm here with you, my disciples. But it's better for you that I go away. Because if I go away, the Spirit, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, literally the Spirit of the risen Christ, my Spirit, to be within you. And what we're taught by Scripture is if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit not just with you, but dwelling within you. Does anybody really understand that fully? Anybody? Not me. I'm putting my hand down. But here's what I know. There have been moments where I feel just the incredible sense of his presence with me. Oftentimes when I'm really dialing in and seeking him, 
But then it's so easy to go through days or weeks where you never really seek after him and you just forget, right? You just forget. The Apostle John also says this. So you have the presence of God with you. You have incredible access to his presence. Here, here's, here's the reality. The author of Hebrews would say you have the most, like, you think they had access to his presence? No, you have such incredible access to God's presence. Why aren't you doing anything with that? Why does that not affect you every day? Why don't you even pause to recognize that every day? So we experience God's presence through the Holy Spirit. We experience his presence through community with each other. And this is the most incredible thing. See, John says this, no one has ever seen God. 1 John 4.12, if you're writing things down. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And so there's a sense. Remember, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. There's a bond that happens among people whose faith and trust is in Jesus that when we gather together, when we come together, the love we have for each other, there's something you can see about God. John actually says it's like you see God in those moments. It's like, God, I can't just like see God. God made it that way, but I can see Jesus in you. And have you ever had those moments, those times when you've had just, you know, somebody encourages you or you take a moment or you pray with somebody here or in a small group setting and, and it's like just something revives in your soul and you're like, wow. And you realize I'm God's presence is here. See, I think like going out to the wilderness by yourself, you know, and finding a spot for me, you know, it's like my, my guitar and, you know, a fire and like my Bible. And, and that's great to have those moments alone. I think God really speaks to you in those moments. But I think we actually experience his presence to a greater degree in the context of community. That's why one of the phrases we have around here is one anothering. It's all over the New Testament. And that's, I think, you, you know where I think you experience the presence of God most of all? Is when two or more are gathered in his name. And you're encouraging each other and praying for each other. You experience it. You experience God, his presence in one another. So you have covenant, you have presence, and you have a feast. You have a feast. Hebrews 9.25, Nor did he, Jesus, enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with blood that is not his own. In other words, they had to do these sacrifices over and over and over just so they had this sense that I'm okay with God. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, and let me just say, that is a sobering reality. And, and, and I would say, for me and for, for many of you, this is something that needs to be fanned in our, in our heart is we recognize there, there is a sobering reality and it's not fun and we don't, you know, as a preacher, it's not like the warm fuzzy, the feels, you know, it doesn't feel good to talk about. 
But there's a reality in Scripture that God says it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. And apart from relationship with God through Christ, there is not hope. In him there is hope. And that should be a motivating and passionate thing on our hearts for anyone in our circle of influence. Um, my circle, my responsibility is, is something we're really trying to get you to embrace around here. And what that means is seeing whatever circle God has placed you in as your responsibility to reach, to love, to pray, to invite, to share Jesus with, right? As a follower of Jesus, you should have a burning passion for those who don't know him. And man, it's so easy for that just to sort of slip off the radar, isn't it? Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear, everybody read this out loud, a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Isn't that incredible? See, here, here's where we get to that third thing, a feast. To, to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, our hope isn't just in the fact that we have fellowship with him now. Our hope is in the fact that we have an incredible eternity ahead of us. That we have an eternity that we can't even comprehend ahead of us. And the way that's going to be brought in is through a feast. Just like they feast on this mountain. The way this is ratified is through a feast, right? Isaiah 20, 25, the prophet Isaiah says this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, sorry, Baptists, <clears throat> and the best of meats, sorry, vegans, <clears throat> and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will re remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. There's a feast coming. There's a feast coming. And what follows that feast, the, the intimacy with God, the relationship with God is beyond anything we can ever imagine. In fact, Jesus talks about this feast when he sees a, a centurion, a Roman, like the enemy that has incredible faith. He says, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But he says, there's some that aren't going to make it. Some who think they are that aren't going to. In fact, at the very last supper, when Jesus takes the cup and says, this is the cup my, that represents my blood that is initiating this new covenant so that you can have this relationship and this eternal promise. He says this, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so the Lord's Supper, when we take the Lord's Supper, communion, here, around here we do it once a month. When we take that, we're celebrating the fact that we have forgiveness now. We have fellowship with God now. But it's also, it's like a down payment on the great feast that's coming. And that feast is going to be an amazing, amazing day. That feast is described in the very last book of the, the Bible. John, the apostle, 
has this incredible revelation from Jesus. And in verse 9 of 19, he says this, Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. The wedding supper of the Lamb. In fact, this feast is going to be so incredible. The only thing that like, can describe the joy of this is the picture of a wedding celebration where a groom says, I want you, and a bride says, yes, I want relationship with you. And then they ratify a covenant, and then they have a party. And in this culture, that party lasts seven days. I like this culture. In fact, here's, here's how this eternity begins to be expressed to us. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Maybe that's that lapis lazuli again, right? It had a great high wall with 12 gates with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen, there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, same word for pillars. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Remember where we started with Moses? 12 pillars. 12 pillars, the 12 tribes. 12 apostles representing every one of you and me who has put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the pillars of this new city. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, God is there. The city does not need sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb, Jesus, is its light. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. No one can see his face and live. Not anymore. Not anymore. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes eternity. Like any book nerds out there? You know that book that's just so good, you, you're getting towards the end and you're like, I don't want to keep reading because it's going to end. C.S. Lewis describes eternity as a book that every chapter just gets, keeps getting better and it never ends. If you have a boring picture of heaven, no, no. Eternity is going to be beyond anything we can comprehend. And it's coming. It's a feast. We have a covenant with God we can enter into through faith and trust in Jesus. We have his presence in our hearts. And there's a feast coming which will set into motion an incredible eternity beyond anything we can imagine. But not everyone will be there. And that should be motivating 
Our hearts have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. We have fellowship with God. And we look forward to eternity. It's the greatest hope anyone could ever have. We have an access to his presence as his people. The people in the Old Testament times just long to have. So why don't we draw near to him more often? Why do we go through a whole day or a whole a week or for some a whole season where he's just the last thing on your mind? Hebrews, the author of Hebrews finishes this little section this way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, three let us, let us do's here. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, talking about baptism. 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, serious about our relationship with Jesus, serious about the faith and the trust that we have in him. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so this week, what I want to challenge you to do, if you find yourself in one of those places where you're like, man, there was a season where I was passionate about God, but man, lately, I barely even think about it. Oh, I still go to church here and there. But honestly, he's the last thing on my mind. Draw near. Set aside time to draw near. To recognize, to commune with God. The fact that you have his Holy Spirit within you and you're not communing with God, well, I think that grieves the heart of the Holy Spirit and the God who wants to have relationship with you. Draw near. Hold unswervingly to the faith you and the hope you possess. Make him be serious about him. And get serious about community. If you've isolated yourself as sort of this lone ranger over here, you need to get with others. You need to get into community. You need to get in fellowship. You need to not rush right out afterwards, but take a moment to, to talk to somebody. You need to maybe come get prayer sometimes, right? Draw near to him this week. I hope you'll do that. Would you stand? I'm going to pray for you. Father, as we looked at uh, this incredible passage that you've preserved for 3,500 years, this incredible encounter that your people had with you, and then as we look at this incredible passage you preserved for, for 2,000 years, Lord, that describes the incredible relationship we have with you. Many times it feels disconnected from our day-to-day -day life, and I pray that you would show us and show each person here exactly how to apply this, that you would show them what drawing near to you means in their day-to-day -day schedule, and then give them 
the courage to do it, and then would you meet them in such a powerful and profound way when they do that, that their life would be changed, Lord. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.